Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 12th, 2023. Uh, sometimes I have people on the show who are in some ways more interesting than their work. Not that their work is not interesting. My guest today is a particularly intriguing figure. Uh, Prit Bhutta uh, was a British, uh, he remains British, but he, he was a, a, a GP, a doctor, a writer. He worked in the uh, army in the UK. Um, he's now living in Scotland, in the south uh, western part of Scotland, in a place called Kirk Kudbright, which is near Dumfries. Uh, and what's particularly remarkable about him is he's become a prolific author of the Eastern Front, the military side of the Eastern Front. He's written, I think, 12 books, uh, including such cheerful ones as books about the Lithuanian Holocaust, books, uh, one book called Meat Grinder, The Battles for the Riev Salient, 1942 to 1943, uh, Battleground Prussia, a book about Germany's... Uh, uh, Eastern Front Battles uh, and books about the First World War One Collision of Empires, which was particularly successful. He has a new book out, particularly, I guess, gruesome or miserable and also inspiring and heroic, To Besiege a City, Leningrad, 1941 to 1942. The book's out tomorrow. I want to get to that book. Uh, but before we get there, Prit, um, how did you get into this? You you were born in the UK. You studied history at university, but you spent your working life as a doctor. What fascinates you so much about the Eastern Front, the military Eastern Front in the First and particularly the Second World Wars? Um, this started from a chance conversation with a patient. Um, uh, though I was looking after an elderly German lady um, in the early 2000s who was beginning to develop dementia. Um, she used to slip into German in consultations. And at the time, my conversational German was just about good enough to keep up. And over time, she told me of her story of um, fleeing from her home in East Prussia um, at the end of the Second World War. It was such an extraordinary story um, that I started researching it. And at the time, my German was okay, but in order to understand many of the German language accounts of the fighting there, I had to translate them, you know, page by page, writing out translations. So I ended up accumulating a lot of information about that particular campaign and almost ended up writing a book by accident. Um, and on each occasion, there was enough material left over from my research uh, to trigger um, a follow-on project. Um, and I'm still going strong now. As I said in the introduction, you have a, a military background. Um, your father, you, you served in the British Army as a surgeon. Uh, what is it about the, the Eastern Front from a military point of view that you find so fascinating? Is it the gruesomeness, the brutality, the miserable quality of, of life on that front? I think it's more just the sheer scale of it. Um, it is, you know, by far and away a colossal battlefield, far bigger than the theatres of the Western Front or North Africa, um, and the sheer numbers of men involved, the 
the mind-boggling challenges of attempting to coordinate that many troops, of supplying them, of moving them around. And when you look at the overall losses suffered by all of the uh, powers involved in the Second World War, you discover that by far and away, the Eastern Front was where the war was decided. This is where most of the casualties took place. Um, from about 1943 onwards, uh, Hitler's ex um, explicit strategy was to preserve as much of his army as possible in the West in anticipation of um, the expected invasion by the Western powers so that he could then crush this and then turn east once more in strength. But it gives you an idea of the scale of the Eastern Front that even when he was prioritizing the forces in the West, 70% of Germany's resources were being absorbed uh, to hold the Red Army at bay. So the bare minimum that uh, could be spared, still amounted to 70% of Germany's uh, army and navy and air force. Well, army and air force. The navy didn't really contribute very much um, on, you know, after the end of the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, so it's just the sheer scale of it. And I think, understandably, um, English language accounts tend to concentrate on campaigns where um, British and American uh, soldiers fought. So North Africa, Italy, um, Normandy and the follow the follow on campaigns, the Pacific, um, Asia, uh, in other words, Burma. But actually, the war was being uh, won and lost on the Eastern Front. Uh, we had Richard Overy on the show last year. I know he, you know him, and he blurbed uh, your your new book on Leningrad. Uh, he talked about the Second World War really being two wars on the Eastern Front, the war you write about, and then the war in Asia between the U.S. and Japan. Can you give me some numbers uh, on this Eastern Front in the Second World War? How many men were involved? Um, the Red Army finished the war with about 12 million men under arms. And this is despite having lost at least that number of soldiers and probably a similar number of civilians. Uh, Germany finished the war with, I think it's still fielded, about two and a half million soldiers. And of these, at least three quarters by um, 1945 were fighting in the East. Um, so just you know, huge numbers of people. We're talking about the equivalent of, of the populations of small countries. Were there armies from other countries involved, or certainly soldiers, Hungarians or Romanians? Yeah, Germany um, took a, a large uh, Romanian contingent with it into uh, the Soviet Union in 1941. This was joined very quickly by Hungarian troops and then an Italian army. Um, there was even a, a division of Spanish volunteers who uh, bizarrely ended up fighting close to Leningrad. You, you know, can you imagine a more inappropriate and in inhospitable environment for soldiers recruited you know, yeah. on the Mediterranean coast. And they end up fighting in, in the frozen north. So yes, there were soldiers from the other Axis powers involved too. Um, and there were, you know, certainly Romanian troops were fighting on the Eastern Front right up to the Romanian surrender um, in the autumn of 1944. The Hungarians carried on fighting um, up to and beyond um, the fall of Budapest in, in early 1945. Um, by then, of course, the Italians were out, the, the Spanish troops had gone home, though there were a small number of Spanish troops serving in SS units uh, that, went, that were still fighting in Berlin at the end of the war. 
It's a chilling, astonishingly chilling. It's the kind of reverse. We did a show last week on Orwell, um, Orwell in, or actually a book about Orwell's wife, but we talked about Orwell in Catalonia, and it's the reverse of Orwell in Catalonia. And that's leaving aside, those were formal troops, Pri. Then we have all, all the guerrilla forces in Poland and elsewhere. So many, many people took up arms without formally being part of an army. Well, many did, but also the um, partisan movement was um, very highly organized and in some respects not really comparable with, let's say, the French resistance or the anti-fascist partisans fighting in Italy against uh, the fascist regime um, from 1943 onwards. Um, in Poland, there was uh, a very large, well-organized home army, or in Polish, the Armia Krajowa. And these were the units of this were organized around the former uh, divisions and regiments of the Polish army prior to um, Poland being um, defeated in 1939. These forces were um, hostile, not only to the Germans, but not particularly keen on, on <laughs> Soviet um, rule either. Understandably, uh, given... Well, indeed, to the Polish army. <laughs> yes, indeed, and also given the way that the Poles regarded the, the the manner in which the Red Army stopped outside Warsaw in 1944 as a deliberate act to allow the Germans mm. to destroy um, the Warsaw Uprising, there were also um, Soviet uh, pro-Soviet partisans all across the Eastern Front, from Ukraine in the south all the way up into the Baltic states in the north, but there were. Um, a Balt, um, nationalists from the three Baltic states and to add further um, complications to the mix um, in Lithuania and Latvia there were also groups of um, Jewish partisans some of whom were pro-Soviet many of whom were Zionist and weren't particularly um, pro-anybody else and simply wanted uh, to get their people out of there um, if they possibly could so a very very complex uh, picture behind the front line and the sheer scale of the landscape means that um, the Germans never really fully pacified their rear areas. At times, there were regions about half the size of Belgium or, or, or equivalent um, areas that, over which they had no control whatever, where large um, forces of partisans or even Soviet airborne forces or cavalry uh, were operating almost with impunity. Plus, of course, the Germans appropriated local policemen to act as troops in one way or the other. We did a show uh, on a photograph of a murder of a, a Jewish woman and her son by a Ukrainian police. So all in all, this whole area, huge geographical area, was one of perpetual warfare or complete warfare. I mean, what, what kind of geography are we talking about here? It's a very large area. Yeah, and we have, and just as you would imagine on a large area, you have an enormous range of landscape. So as the Eastern Front moves west in 1944 and into 45, um, in the south you have um, the Caucasus, uh, not, beg your pardon, you, you have the Carpathian Mountains um, protecting um, Bulgaria and Hungary, uh, and there's uh, bitter fighting in the mountain passes in the last winter of the war. Across Poland, you have largely flat terrain once you get away from the Carpathians in the south, um, but it's crisscrossed by some substantial rivers like the Vistula, um, quite heavily forested. Um, across the Baltic states, lots of forests, again, lots of rivers, both small and large, lots of swampland. So a hugely varied landscape. Um, and 
in the midst of this, you have the ordinary civilians desperately trying to survive uh, the to and fro movements of these enormous armies. Yeah, it's astonishing. I was just in Vilnius going to lots of museums. I know you've written on, on Lithuania. So let's get down to business now. Uh, you've given us some, some wonderful background. Uh, the Siege of Leningrad, when, why, how? Give us some background on, on, on how this came about. And um, not everyone, unfortunately, Prit is as l historically literate as you. You might give some background as well to the uh, the relationship between the Soviet Union and Germany and when war between those countries broke out. Yeah, so the, the background to that is um, this infamous pact that was drawn up between Germany and the Soviet Union um, in August 1939, where they agreed a non-aggression pact, but there was a secret protocol to the pact uh, which stated that in the event of a real uh, a redrawing of the map of Eastern Europe, um, each side recognised uh, spheres of influence for the other. Um, after a little bit of... Uh, kind of the reverse of Yalta in a weird way, isn't it? Well, it, I, it kind of is. And just like Yalta, um, although Yalta was, uh, if you like, the great allied carving up of Europe, um, the, the German and Soviet carving, carving up of Europe, again, um, had you know no real regard for the wants or wishes of the people who were being assigned to one or other sphere of influence. Um, the consequence of this was that Germany occupied most of Poland, um, the Soviets occupied the eastern part. Um, to the north, the three Baltic states eventually became part of the Soviet Union. Um, after some rigged elections in 1940, um, all three states returned um, communist governments uh, who applied for membership of the Soviet Union. The result of that was that the uh, western frontier of the Soviet Union moved further to the west after the incorporation of the Baltic states and of uh, eastern Poland. And this was actually slightly problematic. On the one hand, it created a nice buffer zone. But on the other hand, um, a line of fortifications known as the Stalin line had been built um, running al along at least parts of the old eastern frontier of the Soviet Union. And those fortifications were now obsolete. So in 1914-1941, um, the Soviets started building new fortifications on their new frontier, but these had barely begun construction uh, when war broke out with Germany in, in the summer of 1941. The war uh, took certainly Stalin by surprise, but are you suggesting that that the plan to build those fortifications meant that the that there were many Russians who expected a German invasion? Oh, absolutely. And even Stalin um, had no doubt that war with Germany was going to come. The question was purely about timing. Um, as soon as the uh, news of the non-aggression pact broke, Stalin told his um, close uh, con uh, confederates um, that uh, everyone thinks that Hitler's pulled the wool over my eyes, but actually it's me who's manipulating him. And he always believed that war would come. The Red Army's um, strategic vision of this war was that uh, at some point um, the Soviet Union would come under attack, the Germans would cross the frontier, and the um, the war effort of the Soviet Union would come in two phases. The first would be a defensive battle um, where they would bring the advancing Germans to a halt relatively close to the frontier. And by the time that this was complete, 
um, the mobilization of uh, Soviet forces would mean that there would be sufficient uh, armies available for the second phase, which was then a counteroffensive, firstly to recover Soviet territory and then to project the war into Eastern Europe. And here we get into political doctrine too, because it was always part of um, the grand plan of the Soviet Union to export the Bolshevik revolution to other states. And the expectation was that by hook or by crook, the workers of Eastern Europe and Central Europe would rise up against the fascists and the capitalists and um, the Soviet Union would prevail. Um, So I don't think there was ever any doubt. Um, Stalin, though, refused repeatedly to recognize the intelligence that he was being fed by a variety of sources that the attack was increasingly imminent. He still believed that actually it won't be um, until 1942 at the earliest that Germany is in a position to attack. Um, And to an extent, this was based upon, if you like, rationalization. That was the time when the reforms of the Red Army that had been brought, that had been started in 1940 and, and early 41, would be um, bearing fruit. So his thinking was that re- we're not going to be ready to deal with the Germans until 1942. Therefore, we have to persuade ourselves they're not going to attack until then. Mm, Stalin. That's what you might describe as Stalin logic or Stalinist logic, not a logic that many of us would use. So, uh, Prit, remind us of Leningrad, once known as St. Petersburg, now again St. Petersburg. Remind us of its place geographically, culturally, politically, and economically within the Soviet Union. Yes, it's... uh... If any of of your uh, viewers have been to uh, Russia and particularly to St. Petersburg, they'll recognize that it's actually a very unusual city. It's it's not like any other Russian city I've ever visited. Um, It was built by Peter the Great deliberately as a window on the West. Um, He had returned to Russia after traveling across uh, most of Europe, and he was desperate to drag his country that he saw as a backward Um, inward-looking state into the modern era. He wanted um, a capital on the coast in order to inspire Russians to become sailors, to build an ocean-going navy to emulate those uh, of um, Holland and Britain. Um, He wanted a nice neoclassical capital with uh, rectilinear roads and and streets and canals. Um, And he basically bullied all of his courtiers to move to his new capital from Moscow. Um, The city was then further embellished during the reign of the Tsars who followed, particularly Catherine the Great. And when industrialization began, um, it was uh, one of the main centers of uh, industrialization in um, Imperial Russia. So by the beginning of the First World War, it's actually the biggest center of um, industrial production. Um, Moscow comes um, in a rather distant third place. Second place was the the current Latvian capital of Riga. Um, It gives you an idea of how slow the rest of And Riga was was. a... I was just in Riga this summer too. I mean, that's a a small town on on any standard. So, uh, and then, of course, when the Soviets came to power, uh, there was always a... Was it a, a political question mark about St. Petersburg, Leningrad? Is that fair? 
Yeah, so when the uh, the revolutions of 1917 took place, um, the city was then known as Petrograd, and it was still the capital of Russia. So, of course, that was where um, the revolution was going to be decided. Uh, first, the overthrow of the Romanovs, and then the, the rise of the Bolsheviks. But because um, this was followed shortly after by the civil war with the white Russians attempting to overthrow the Bolsheviks, the capital was moved to Moscow because Leningrad was very vulnerable. It was very close to um, uh, frontiers with Finland and with the newly independent Estonia. Um, but Stalin, when he came to power, always had a difficult relationship with this city, although it held a special place in Soviet mythology because of it was the cradle of the revolution, etc. It also had this reputation for being a rather difficult, prickly place full of um, irritating intellectuals who had a habit of thinking for themselves, which wasn't really in keeping with Stalin's vision. So when the the purges of the 1930s uh, were unleashed upon um, the Soviet Union. In many respects, Leningrad uh, bore the brunt of these. It saw large swathes of, of society, of, of uh, industrialists, of businessmen, military figures, um, artists, cultural figures, all being purged, arrested, many were executed, others deported. Um, the city had also endured some difficult years straight after the First World War when famine was a common feature in the winter. Um, and this reflected the, the terrible state of uh, Russian railways um, after the First World War. So in many ways, this was a city that was already used to hardship uh, when the Second World War began. I want to take a break in a second, um, Prit, but let's get to the siege. So the, the, the Germans launch uh, an invasion of the Soviet Union, which didn't surprise everyone. It may have surprised Stalin. Why did Leningrad become one of the great symbols, at least according to uh, Wikipedia, my resource, when I don't have Prit Buttar to remind, uh, to, 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 to ask questions. Uh, the, um, the, 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 uh, the invasion uh, of, uh, of Russia, the Leningrad capture was one of the, the three strategic goals of uh, German Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Is that true? Was Leningrad, from Hitler's point of view, the, the pearl? Absolutely. And I think it's important to um, remember that this was a siege that was um, unlike most other sieges in history, when you normally besieged a city in preceding centuries or besieged a fortress, the intention was to take the place and capture it, um, perhaps install a new governor or whatever. The intention of the siege of Leningrad was to destroy the city. Um, the uh, German plan for uh, the occupied areas of um, the Soviet Union was actually to destroy the Soviet Union and to a large extent to destroy the Soviet people, to make room for German settlers, to create um, or to reduce the population sufficiently to create a large agricultural surplus that could then be exported back to Germany. Um, cities like Leningrad were prime um, concentrations of population uh, that could be eliminated in order to achieve this. So although the city was besieged and starvation resulted, this was not like attempting to starve a medieval city to the point where the garrison would be too weak to resist. This was a deliberate attempt to starve a city of two and a half million people to death. 
uh, which uh, is probably no great surprise for, for anyone who knows anything about Nazi Germany. We are talking to Prit Buta, the author of a remarkable new book, To Besiege a City. It's just out tomorrow. It's actually, uh, to remind everyone, it's Leningrad 1941-42. It's the first part um, of a two-part book. The, the second will deal with the, uh, the, the siege of Leningrad 42-44. to 44. Um, we're going to take a short break, Prit. Uh, I want to just remind everyone that uh, our sponsor is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a short ad for them, and then we'll be back. And then we want to talk specifically the nuts and bolts of this tragic, barbaric siege of a city. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Prit Buta, the author of To Besiege a City, Leningrad, 1941 to 42. I want to spend the second part, uh, Prit, talking about this siege uh, between 41 and 42. So the Germans advance. Give us some context for the siege, military and, and economic. Yeah, um, that map is actually very useful because it shows the line that the uh, Germans had uh, reached. Um, in uh, and by the way, uh, for, for, for people who are listening, we're, we're looking at a, a map of, um, of of the siege. Yeah. So for those who, who can't see the map, the, the geography of the area is that Leningrad is at the eastern end of a long inlet from the Baltic. Um, there is a, a small corridor of land uh, to the east of the city itself until you reach Lake Ladoga, which is the largest uh, freshwater lake um, in Europe. And the, the Germans pushed up to the southern suburbs of Leningrad. Uh, they also reached the coast of Lake Ladoga, effectively cutting Leningrad off uh, from the rest of the Soviet Union. And the Finns in the north were, um, they, had, they had recovered land that they had lost in their war with the Soviet Union in 1939 to 1940, but didn't close in on the city from the north as the Germans had rather hoped they would. The result of that um, uh, German advance to the shore of Lake Ladoga meant that the railway lines upon which Leningrad depended for its food supplies were now cut. And the city faced a terrible winter um, with very little by way of food stockpiles within the city. And any food that, uh, or any supplies indeed, that could be brought in would have to come in via the lake. At the time, uh, airlift capacity uh, by Soviet aviation was very, very limited. Um, we're talking of tens of tons a day. And for a city of two and a half million people plus um, Armies are numbering probably uh, between a third and a half of a million uh, uh, Soviet troops uh, defending the area. Uh, that was never going to be enough. Uh, everything depended on tra uh, um, transporting supplies, munitions, food, fuel, etc. across Lake Ladoga. And then what about the Stalin's response to this? Um, the, the Russians, of course, retreated from the, the, the Germans, which 
in the long run, I guess, was was wise military strategy. Was Leningrad essentially isolated from the rest of of Soviet Union? Well, it was when the Germans reached um, Lake Ladoga. Um, they. Uh, the, the Red Army had attempted repeatedly to halt the Germans, and the intention had always been to hold the Germans at arm's length from the city. Um, given that this was an era when pretty much all supplies of any sort had to move by railway, um, the, the Soviet authorities faced uh, a multiple problem. Um, they had limited railway capacity, so they could supply the armies fighting uh, the, against the Germans as they approached Leningrad, they could attempt to stockpile supplies of all sorts within the city, or they could attempt to evacuate the population. They really couldn't do all three. And in fact, they would struggle to do more than one. They concentrated on trying to keep the army going because the belief was if we can succeed in stopping uh, the Germans from reaching the outskirts of the city, the other two uh, factors become much less relevant. So when they failed to stop the Germans, um, and this was a, there were a, a series of very costly battles uh, as the, uh, the German army group north ground its way closer and closer to the city. So by the time that the city was cut off from the rest of the Soviet Union, um, there had been little opportunity to stockpile anything within the city. Um, and, and that greatly compounded the problems faced by the people uh, who are now trapped uh, within this perimeter. How many people were trapped? Well, the pop population of the city was about two and a half million at the start of the war, perhaps half Which a million. Which was at that point made it a very large place. Yeah, and, and perhaps half a million had gone by September 41 through a mixture of mobilization or transfer to the east because part of the, the great Soviet plan was a, a fairly ruthless transfer of industrial capacity uh, from the cities in the west uh, to parts of Siberia where they were reconstructed and, and resumed activity and a lot of the workers went with them. But in the case of Leningrad, an awful lot of industrial plant was packed up waiting for um, transport when the city was cut off. So even that process was incomplete. So you probably still have about 2 million uh, civilians, plus you have about a third of a million to half a million soldiers and sailors um, in that perimeter. And the true number is, is very difficult to ascertain because, of course, large numbers of civilians had retreated into the city with the Red Army as it pulled back towards Leningrad. And these were people who had no documents. This, it became uh, almost impossible for many of them to get ration books once rationing commenced, etc. So not only do we not know the exact number of civilians in, in the city, we also only have estimates as to how many actually then died in, in the winter that followed. You've mentioned a couple of times the food situation, some of the stories. I, I, when I was in St. Petersburg a few years ago, I went to a museum about this. They're, they're really chilling, stomach-churning, stories of cannibalism. Um, uh, how bad was it, Pritt? I mean, are, are we talking about one of the worst situations in, in history when it came to the starvation of millions of people? It's very hard to think of any city that suffered as much um, as the 
uh, civilian population of Leningrad suffered in that first winter. I'm, I'm not. I am not belittling the suffering of cities like Warsaw, of uh, people in the Jewish parts of various cities across East Europe. Of course, there were other places too, but this was across an entire city. Um, it coincided with a winter of unusual severity. So once power supplies to the city were cut um, or, or badly damaged, once um, coal stocks within the city had run out, and once firewood had run out, um, that made uh, matters even worse. Um, there uh, the rivers were frozen, water pumping facilities um, ceased to function through a mixture of fuel shortages and deliberate German bombardment. So people had to try to break the ice in the canals and the rivers in order to get uh, even water. They would then lack the ability to heat this up in order to uh, prepare food or even to wash properly. Um, people took to wearing pretty much all the clothing that they possessed. Um, Corpses were very rapidly stripped of their clothing, and eventually, um, as the winter progressed and people died in very large numbers, um, many of the corpses started to bear the signs of having flesh cut from them. Um, over a thousand uh, Leningrad citizens were ultimately arrested, many of them executed, um, charged with one of two crimes, um, the NKVD. Um, classified um, cannibalism into two groups. One was um, taking flesh from dead bodies and the other was deliberately luring people into places where they could be killed uh, and then literally slaughtered. Um, the uh, barges that were carrying food across Lake Ladiga stopped running um, towards the end of October because the lake was beginning to freeze. And for a few weeks, the city was very much dependent on what tiny stockpiles that there were within the city. Then once the, the lake froze, um, there occurred uh, this extraordinary miracle of the road of life, uh, this series of roads that were constructed across the ice and allowed convoys to run across the um, uh, frozen lake. And the amount of food and uh, fuel brought in was just about sufficient uh, for the city to survive the siege. Um, and despite that, still hundreds of thousands of people uh, starved to death in that winter. You mentioned the NKVD, the Soviet secret police. Was I mean, clearly there was a degree of disorder. You mentioned cannibalism and murder. Uh, but was order maintained and was it an order maintained in Bolshevik, Stalinist style? Or was it a reverse perhaps to a more traditional Russian order? Um, there was some disorder. There were some protests, particularly about food shortages, because although there was very harsh rationing and the rationing, well, the calories per day in your ration book were hopelessly low, not nowhere near enough to sustain weight. How many um, calories? 500, 300? Well, yeah, so it, it varied according to how you were classified. Um, there were three main groups. The first was work workers. They got the most calories, but even then they would be getting probably no more than about um, 1,100, 1,200 calories a day. Um, then there were other adults who got about two-thirds of that. And finally, there were children who got only about a third of the, the full allowance. And this was assuming you could actually cash in your ration coupons. Quite often, there was no food available at all. The uh, additional tragedy was that teenagers were uh, recruited into work parties 
um, and worked as hard as adults. So they were doing this with only one third of the rations. And the death rate amongst teenagers was, was far higher than any other group in the city. Um, so these people were struggling um, on very, very little food. Um, before we went on air, we were talking briefly about how domestic animals very rapidly disappeared around the city. Um, Oddly enough, some of the zoo animals survived the siege. But in terms of the people's attitude, although there was some unrest and some people were pleading for surrender, by then there was general awareness that the Germans had no intention of allowing the city to surrender. And in fact, um, orders had gone out to Army Group North saying, if the Soviets attempt to surrender the city, you will not accept this because we do not want responsibility for feeding the population. Um, many people just took a very defiant pride in the fact that they, you know, they were Leningraders. This was, this was their home. And just as it had survived the Stalin purges, it had survived the famines of the 1920s. They were determined to survive this too. What would have happened if the Germans had taken the city? Um, oddly enough, the Germans didn't draw up detailed plans for that event um, uh, until after they had crossed the border into the Soviet Union. You'd have thought that given this was one of the prime targets, you'd have had detailed plans of what was going to happen. Of course, they had nominated an army that would occupy the area. But in terms of the practicalities of the nuts and bolts of how it was going to happen, um, well, Einsatzgruppe A, the SS unit following Army Group North, was to um, kill the Jews and the, uh, the Bolsheviks and anybody else they regarded as undesirable. Um, the Wehrmacht would occupy the area. Many of the main, large um, city buildings would be dynamited. And the population was simply going to be driven off into uh, the eastern uh, uh, parts uh, of the region uh, where they were expected. Well, the official language was they will fend for themselves. But I think everybody knew that the consequences would be that they would just starve in the forests and swamps of the region. Um, there was absolutely no intent. Uh, intention of creating a city that would be then ruled by um, either Germans or uh, German-controlled administration, or even of handing the population over to the Finns. The, uh, uh, Hitler even said, if the Finns want the region, they are welcome to it, um, but Leningrad itself will cease to exist as a city. It's astonishing. Um, looking back at the map, Pritt, were there ever plans to simply evacuate everyone across the lake? Well, they, the city continued to be a centre of um, armaments and munitions production, um, not least because the armies protecting the city from north and south um, required ammunition. And in order to reduce the strain upon the limited transport capacity across the lake, they had to keep production going within the city. So um, all of the workers in those factories uh, were expected to stay. Large numbers of the civilians who were then, you know, needed to keep those workers alive would have to stay. But the, the barges um, that carried supplies until um, the ice formed and then the road convoys that followed, um, having dropped off their supplies um, in the enclave, they picked up large numbers of civilians and took them off to the east. So as the uh, winter wore on, the population declined very, very rapidly through a mixture of evacuation and uh, through the deaths from starvation. And throughout this period, of course, the Germans were bombarding the city 
both by air and with heavy yeah that was i was going to ask i mean on on top of everything else i wonder whether you would consider the people who got out the lucky ones or, or the unlucky ones well Many of them felt undoubtedly that they were the lucky ones because although food was hardly um, plentiful across the rest of the Soviet Union, it was, you know, far, far uh, more plentiful than it was within the siege perimeter. And for these people who had endured unimaginable horrors and had seen so many of their families die and had seen their proud city reduced just to this massive um, morgue almost. Uh, for them, the relief of getting out was almost universal. Um, but many chose to stay. Uh, many volunteered to stay and others then returned to the city as soon as it became possible once um, supplies had been built up to the level where starvation was no longer an issue. And um, there was, you know, you can imagine if any if any major Western city where people have a strong sense of identity. So if it was London or if it was uh, New York or Chicago, you can imagine again the sense of, if you like, civic pride where people felt, you know, this is our home, of course, uh, if at all possible, we have to stay here, we, we have to be defiant, we have to defy the enemy. And this became very much part of, if you like, the uh, the strategic or the propaganda or moral value of um, the siege, both to the Soviet Union and to the Allied powers as a whole. It was this great symbol of, of, of a city that simply refused to die. Hitler, of course, thought of himself as a student of, of art and architecture. He famously didn't want to level Paris. Uh, St. Petersburg, for all his hatred of Russians and Slavs was undoubtedly a beautiful place. Had he killed everyone there, what would he have done with 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 Saint Petersburg? Would he have leveled it, or would he have repopulated it with Germans? I, you know, it, it's a very tough question because officially the intention was to dynamite all of those fine buildings. Now, you know, you've been to Saint Petersburg, you have probably walked around Admiralty Square and along the, the yeah, near it's a magnificent place. It's Venice, Venice on the Baltic. It is a stunningly beautiful city, um, and yet officially the Winter Palace, um, the Admiralty, uh, all of those buildings were going to be dynamited and destroyed. Uh, whether the, real, the reality would have been that having exterminated the population, it was handed over to German settlers, who knows? Uh, you know, thankfully, Fortunately, we, we don't have yeah, to we'll never find out. We'll yeah. never know. So uh, this, as I said, this is the first part in a two-part book on, um, on the siege of Leningrad. This one is Leningrad 41 to 42. Where do you end in this history? Do you end at the lowest point in 42? Well, no, because the lowest point was that siege in the winter. Throughout 1942 itself, the Red Army made several attempts to break the siege ring. Um, but the landscape was such that the axes of attack were very, very predictable. Uh, this is an area of widespread forest and swamp, even today. So there are limited areas where you can conduct major operations. And of course, the Germans knew that. And this is ideal territory for defensive fighting. Uh, the Red Army paid a huge price in those failures to break through. Um, the Second Shock Army was destroyed twice over. Um, it was destroyed once in the summer, rebuilt, and then lost again. Uh, on the first occasion, its commander, General Vlasov, was captured by um, the Germans, and he became infamous because 
uh, he then chose to fight on behalf of the Germans against the Soviet Union. So he became a real hate figure uh, for Soviet writing after the war. He was seen as this, um, well, he was a traitor uh, to, to the Soviet Union. Uh, but the Germans had really lost their, their, if you like, their best opportunity to take the city in that first winter. They had calculated carefully uh, that they could starve the city to death. There had been these cold-blooded calculations and discussions with nutritionists on how um, tough the siege would have to be in order for it to be successful. When that failed, um, uh, of course, in 1942, Hitler's attention turned to the campaign in the south to reach Stalingrad and turn south into the Caucasus to capture the oil fields. But at one point when um, the Germans captured the city of Sevastopol in Crimea, Hitler ordered uh, Manstein and his 11th Army to move north uh, in preparation for a renewed attack on Leningrad. Now, this wasn't an int- uh, the intention was not to storm the city, but it was to cut that uh, narrow corridor of land immediately to the east of Leningrad between the city and Lake Ladoga, so that in a second winter of siege, um, the city would be more effectively starved to death. Um, in the event, the arrival of these troops uh, in the north coincided with another attempt by the Red Army to smash its way along the coast of Lake Ladoga to the siege perimeter. And all of the German troops were gradually sucked into the fighting there. And those that weren't were then suddenly dispatched off to the south uh, to deal with the crisis around Stalingrad. But even if they had launched this attack towards uh, the north to link up with the Finns, I think the terrain was such that it would have been almost impossible for the Germans to achieve any significant success. It's a very forested region. It's very swampy. By then, the Red Army had time to uh, build ample defensive lines, and that whole area was very, very heavily fortified. So the prospects of the city falling were pretty much gone by the end of that first terrible winter. And thereafter, it was really a matter of the Red Army grinding down the Germans, They continued to mount these attacks throughout 42. And in the volume two, I then talk about the success. The volume two isn't out though yet. It's not out yet. It'll be out early next year, uh, I hope. And that covers. It's written mostly. It is covered. We're now at the editing stage, yeah. Well, let's Um, end um, with a. It's an astonishing story, and you'll definitely have to come back on, uh, Pritt. I'd love to have you back. Well, I'd love to. Yes. The second volume. But let's end with the, the broader context. Uh, Vladimir Putin's parents, of course, survived the siege of Leningrad. Uh, sometimes some of his apologists ex- explain his own behavior in, in that context. What's the legacy, particularly of, of 41 to 42 today in the 2020s? It's a hugely complicated subject, and this uh, draws us into the manner in which um, the Soviet Union, and particularly Stalin, attempted to portray um, the Soviet experience in the Second World War. The official um, party line was that um, the victory of the Soviet Union over fascist Germany was a unique event made possible only by the Bolshevik system, uh, this brotherhood of nations that had come together in the Soviet Union under the leadership of the uh, Bolsheviks of the Communist Party, who in turn were led by the infallible figure of Joseph Stalin. 
Um, even after the fall of Stalin and the denunciation of Stalin, the beginning of recognition of the mistakes that he had made, there was still a sense that um, this was a lot of that legacy still survived. There was still this sense that um, we can't glorify one particular aspect of the war because that would be to um, to reduce the contribution made by other parts of the Soviet people. Um, and, and in fact, for obvious reasons, Stalin had said, if you're going to talk about any one place as being the key battlefield of the Second World War in the East, it'll be Stalingrad because it was a city that had his name. Um, and it's notable that, you know, the, uh, the war memorial that you probably visited when you went to St. Petersburg, where the museum to the siege is, mm. uh, was, was only built in 1971. It was, you know, many years after the war. Um, and as a result, the, the people of St. Petersburg um, and their descendants who have now spread around both the Soviet Union and indeed around Ukraine and the rest of the world, for them, there is a very real living history and a remembrance of the unique suffering of their city. For the rest of Russia, I don't think it is recognized in quite the same way. And for me, one of the most horrible um, aspects of the current war was I was writing about the... Secret. You mean in Ukraine? Yeah. When, it's, when it started, I was writing this book. And in David Glantz's account of... Um, the siege in his book there is a soviet propaganda poster from the siege of um, uh, a russian woman holding a dead child and the the caption in russian is just death to the killers of children and yet now we have ukrainian cities being bombarded indiscriminately almost every day and there is absolutely no insight in the russian leadership certainly and indeed i suspect in large parts of russian society that they are perpetrating similar crimes themselves uh, upon another nation.